Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Pediatric Emergencies Podcast. So today we're talking about pediatric critical care pearls. So what are pediatric critical care pearls? These are pearls of knowledge, important clinical concepts, summarised into a sentence or two. Um, and they're things that I, I've picked up over the years um, that I've remembered. And I thought it's probably worth putting these down in one place so that others can benefit from them as well. Um, it's probably going to be a multi-part series. So today you're getting part one, um, and I'm going to give you ten uh, critical care pearls. These aren't the ten most important critical care pearls, because otherwise the rest of the episodes would be quite boring. They're just ten in the order that they've come to me. So I'm going to get started with peril one. So peril one is consider going straight for interosseous access in a crashing patient. Um, I think it's reasonable to have a look at your patient and if it looks that venous access is going to be possible, then by all means have a go or two. Um, but don't take any more than 90 seconds or two attempts to get access. Um, if you think it's going to take you longer than that or you've tried for that amount of time, you should put an interosseous line in. If the patient comes in and they look absolutely horrendous, the chances are they're going to be shut down. The chances of you getting a decent cannula in are going to be slim to none. And these are the patients that I would recommend you go in straight for an interosseous access. Um, I'm going to link to a nice video in the show notes um, which shows an interosseous access being placed in the humerus of a cadaver. They've dissected down to the cyclavian vein and you can see that even in a cadaver when they bolus some saline you get almost instantaneous swelling of the subclavian vein. So you're getting delivery of whatever you've given into that interosseous line directly into the central circulation. And that's something you're not going to get with a crappy cannula in the back of a hand in a shocked child. So for that really sick child actually, an interosseous axis is going to be much more useful than a small cannula in the back of a wrist or the back of a hand. And in that child, I would strongly recommend you go straight for an IO access. Don't even look for a venous line. Okay, moving on to peril two. This one is something that really gives me lots of confusion. I don't know why people do this. Um, and peril two is use kefotaxin rather than keftraxone initially in patients with septic shock. Um, but particularly in Northern Ireland, um, what is done is keftraxone. Is given. So these patients um, we've just mentioned in peril one, you often struggle to get access and your access is really, really precious. So if you want to give kefotaxin via your access, it's three minutes as a slow IV push and you've got your access free to give some more fluid or whatever other life-saving drugs you want to give. If you've for some reason decided that keftraxone is the best drug to give, you're tying your intravenous access up for 30 minutes. That's how long the cataraxone needs to be given over. So that precious access that you've now got is going to be tied up for 30 minutes with an antibiotic infusion. What's more important is that actually while cataraxone is running, you can't give calcium via another line. Even if it's in a different site, there's a risk of precipitation if you give calcium via 
sorry, while the cataraxone is running. And calcium, as you, if you've listened to Ms. Sepsis talk, is something that's really important. All your other vasoactive drugs rely on calcium to work. So if your ionized calcium is less than one, I'm almost certainly giving um, a push of calcium during those first 30 minutes. Um, any advantages to cataraxone over cefotaxime in that initial period? Absolutely not. Um, cefotaxime is more convenient, it's once a day, and we know it certainly eradicates the carriage of uh, nasal meningococcus, whereas we're not sure whether um, cefotaxime does. But for that acute scenario, there's nothing stopping you giving a bolus of cefotaxime and then six hours later switching to cefotaxime when you've got more access and it's not quite as precious. So like I say, this is one that absolutely confuses me why people work so hard to get their access and then tie it up for 30 minutes with cefotaxime. So don't do it. Okay, pearl number three. So pearl three is don't exceed the adult maximum dose when using salbutamol infusions. Um, this used to be one of my most common referrals when I was working in England as a paediatric intensive care registrar. You would get a call from the, the HDU or from one of the district general hospitals saying they had a child on a salbutamol infusion, an asthmatic, who although their wheeze was better, they were working harder, becoming more tachypneic, and their lactate was starting to rise. Um, and when you calculated how much salbutamol they were on, they were on much more than you would give an adult. So they were being poisoned by the salbutamol they were on. And the features of tachypnea and lactic acidosis were actually um, symptoms of salbutamol toxicity. You would advise them to turn down the infusion and um, back to more appropriate doses and the symptoms would settle quite quickly. So why does this happen? Well, the normal range um, quoted in the British National Formulary for children for salbutamol infusions is 1 to 5 mics per kilo per minute. In the adult BNF, it's 3 to 20 mics per minute. So that's mics per minute, not mics per kilo per minute. So you can see if you have a 20 kilo child and you start them on the normal starting dose of salbutamol 1 mic per kilo per minute, you're giving them 20 mics per minute which is the adult maximum dose. And that's in a 20 kilo child. For example, you had a, a 60 kilo child and you start them on the normal starting dose of one mic per kilo per minute. You're giving them three times the maximum adult dose. If you suddenly want to increase it up to two mics per kilo per minute, you're giving six times the adult maximum dose. So it's not surprising um, that we see salbutamol toxicity um, when these doses are given. Um, so to prevent this, um, I would recommend that you don't go above 20 mics per minute of salbutamol. And that's 6 mils an hour of a standard strength salbutamol infusion, um, which is 10 milligrams and 50 mils of normal saline. So remember that any child who's 20 kilos or more, starting at the normal recommended starting dose, will exceed the adult maximum dose. So you should limit this to 20 mics Per minute. There's no advantage to going above this, the salbutamol toxicity is commonplace above this and the drug's not any more effective. Um, 
when going to the pediatric dosing range at one to five, I'd almost never use more than two mics per kilo per minute of subutamol. You just get so much more of the complications and almost no benefit. You're better using another drug um, added into the subutamol infusion rather than trying to max it out. So don't exceed the adult maximum dose when using subutamol infusions. Limit it to 20 mics a minute or six mils an hour of 10 milligrams and 50 mils of normal saline. Okay, go on to peril four. So peril four is don't delay calling the ambulance in a patient needing time critical transfer. So this is the traumatic brain injury that comes into the emergency department um, who you scan and they've got a time critical neurosurgical lesion. This is a patient you should call the emergency ambulance for almost immediately. Why am I saying you should do this? Even if you're not quite ready to transfer the child to the tertiary centre, um, the presence of the ambulance crew waiting will make you less likely to do any unnecessary interventions, such as citing arterial lines, central lines, urinary catheters, things that are not going to improve the outcome for that child. Um, so have the ambulance crew there straight away the key thing for the, the child who needs a time-critical intervention is to go to that intervention. So like I say, the ambulance crew standing there will make you less likely to do something to delay that. Okay, so moving on to Pearl 5. And Pearl 5 is when you see a colour, think bougie. And this refers to the setting of a child who's having their C-spine immobilised with a colour who requires intubation. So although you'll be taking the collar off and replacing it with manual inline stabilisation during the intubation, the immobilisation of the neck and the limited movement that you're going to have during the intubation will turn a normal airway into a slightly more tricky airway. And most children who have a, a normal grade 1 view without C-spine immobilisation will have at least a grade 2 view um, with their C-spine immobilised. And if they have a slightly difficult airway to start off with, it's going to be even more difficult once you mobilise their C-spine. So if you're expecting a grade 2 view at best, um, it makes sense to have a bougie to hand or even go one step further and decide you're electively going to use a bougie for all these intubations. So when you see a collar, think use a bougie. Okay, moving on to peril 6. And Pearl 6 is use a cuffed endotracheal tube in all critically ill children unless contraindicated. So why am I saying this? Um, I've already done a podcast looking at uh, whether we should or shouldn't be using cuffed endotracheal tubes routinely in all critically ill children. So if you want the full story, um, go and listen to that podcast. Um, but in summary, um, the use of a cuffed endotracheal tube means that you're going to have to put one tube down and not have to go upsizing it at a later stage if the child develops a leak around the tube and you're unable to ventilate them effectively. So when I was working across in England, you quite often go out to a lot of the district general hospitals and most of them were using on-cuff tubes. So we were maybe changing 30% of the tubes that we were going out to before we were able to move the child because we weren't able to ventilate them effectively. Um, to transfer them to the paediatric intensive care unit. And it wasn't that uncommon that you would have to change a tube in a really sick child 
um, because although when they came in initially the pressures weren't that high, they were able to ventilate, but then they would develop as the pressures went up a leak around their tube and you would struggle to ventilate them. So you had to do the dicey procedure of trying to change a tube in a child who was on a lot of oxygen and wasn't ventilating particularly well. Um, thankfully in Northern Ireland we're almost universally using microcuff tubes. So this is something I'm not spending my time doing. When I go out to pick up a child, they've generally put one tube in, we've blown up the cuff and haven't had to change it. I'm going out, I'm not having to change the tube, and in the intensive care unit, it's rare that I'm having to change a tube because of leak or sizing problems. So for those very reasons, I would strongly recommend if you're intubating a critically ill child, you use a cuffed end to track your tube. I have mentioned that you should use a cuffed end to track your tube unless it's contraindicated. And just important to mention that it is contraindicated in children less than three kilos or in preterm neonates. But everybody else, um, as far as I'm concerned, you should be using a cuffed endotracheal tube. Right, moving on to peril number seven. So peril seven is don't insert upper circulation central lines in patients with hypokalemia. So this is one of the common reasons we are asked to put a central line into a child. It may be that they're an asthmatic on lots of solubitamol uh, infusions or frequent nebulizers, or for some other reason a post-op patient who's got hypokalemia which can't be managed with the normal amount of potassium that you can put safely into peripheral fluids. So why am I saying avoid upper circulation central lines? And, and by that I mean subclavian and internal jugular lines. And the reason for that is what you really do want to do in a child that has a low potassium level is to put a wire into their heart and trigger an arrhythmia. Um, and the heart is much more likely to go into arrhythmia um, if they're hypokalemic. Um, if you put a femoral line in, yes, it is possible to put the wire into the heart, but it's quite a challenge to put it in so far. So a femoral line would definitely be your best choice in this situation. Likewise, if you do want to put a pec line in, it would be important that it doesn't go anywhere near the heart. So leave it slightly further back than what you normally would. Okay, moving on to peril number eight. So peril eight is use ultrasound to help insert arterial lines in children with weak or impalpable pulses. So it's fairly common, you, you have a shocked child, um, you might not be able to feel the peripheral pulses, and sometimes even the femoral pulses are very difficult to feel. But to manage that child effectively, you are gonna to need to have arterial monitoring because quite frequently the non-invasive blood pressure won't pick up or gives quite inaccurate readings in this child. And this is where ultrasound can really, really help you. I use ultrasound for a lot of my arterial lines because rather than poke about a few times to hit the artery, I'd rather just go once and put the line in on the first go. And this is going to be even more difficult in a shocked child with pulses that you can't feel if you try to do it without the ultrasound. It's just as easy as it is in a child with good pulses to do this um, with ultrasound. Um, what is important is that you try and transfix the artery. So what I'd recommend you do is you position the artery in the middle of the screen, take your cannula and put it straight through the artery on ultrasound. Put the ultrasound to the side, take the needle out of the cannula, have a wire ready and withdraw the cannula millimetre by millimetre until pulsatile blood starts to come down the cannula. 
at that stage stop withdrawing it and put the wire down it and it really is that easy. Okay, pearl nine. Start prostaglandin infusions at a dose appropriate to the clinical situation. This is something I see done wrong time and time again. What commonly is done is the prostaglandin infusion is started at five or 10 nanograms per kilo per minute, regardless of the clinical situation. So if you have a, a baby, you have an antenatal diagnosis of congenital heart disease, which is likely to be duct dependent, You've got a wide open duct, 5 nanograms per kilo per minute of prostin is absolutely perfect to keep that duct open. If on the other hand you have a shocked neonate whose duct has closed and you're trying to reopen that duct, starting that child on 5 nanograms per kilo per minute of prostin is not the right thing to do because it's highly unlikely to open the duct and then while you increase it slowly up towards 20 uh, over a period of minutes to hours is again not the right thing for that child. If you want to open the duct you need to start on a dose that you think is likely to do that and for me the minimum dose that I would use in that situation is 20 nanograms per kilo per minute. If that's not effective I would very quickly work that up to 50 and if that's not effective again I would double that up to 100 nanograms per kilo per minute. You're almost certainly going to have side effects at those doses, but those are the doses you need to open the duct, and if you don't open this child's duct, they're going to be in trouble. So don't take your time about it. Pick a dose appropriate to the clinical situation. So five, perfect to keep a duct open that's widely open. 20 is a reasonable starting point for a duct that's closed that you're trying to reopen, but very quickly go up as high as 100 if you're trying to open the duct and it's not opening. Okay, pearl 10. You can't lead and do at the same time. So it's become well recognised that human factors are really important to what we do in medicine. And if you're trying to lead a scenario, be it a resuscitation or management of a critically ill child, and you're, you're involved in a practical procedure at the same time, because your focus is going to be split between the two tasks, you're probably not going to do either of them particularly well. So the team leader should stand at the bottom of the bed and conduct things and not put hands on the patient, not get drawn into one specific task. Because if they do that, they're taking the eye off the big picture and focusing just on the one task. And this is where task fixation comes in. Um, quite often you go down to recess and everybody is poking at the child trying to get a line in and nobody's actually leading whereas what this child needs is an interosseous line in and to get on with resuscitating them rather than everybody focusing on trying to get this line and that's what happens the Elaine Bromley case was a good example of this where the team looking after her became fixated and intubating her uh, at all costs and didn't consider other options because nobody was standing back and actually leading the situation everybody was involved on a particular task so this is really really important that's probably one of the most important pearls that I can give you is you cannot lead and do at the same time so obviously if you're the team leader stand at the bottom of the bed use your team to do the tasks keep your eye on the big picture so what happens if you're the person who 
would normally lead, but needs to go and do the intubation, needs to put the line because somebody else can't get it. Well, I think the key is that you recognise that you won't be leading effectively while you go and do that task. So hand that task of leading the team over to somebody else while you're doing that procedure. You can always take it back again when you're done. So you just need to recognise that in yourself that you won't be able to lead effectively while you're going to do a task. Okay, so that's enough for now. That's 10 critical care pearls. Let us know what you've thought of the pearls um, on the website, pediatricemergencies.com, by leaving me a comment. Let me know if you agree or disagree, or if you've got any further pearls of your own to share with others. Um, if I can also ask if you've been enjoying the podcast so far, please take two minutes and go to iTunes and leave me a review. If you don't even have two minutes, can you take 30 seconds and give the podcast a star rating? It'll be really useful for me just to know what people think of the podcast. Um, We get thousands of listens, but I've only had about three reviews so far. So I would really appreciate if you were to take a couple of minutes and leave me a review. In return, my New Year's resolution is to try and get the podcast site a little bit more frequently. Uh, And this um, series is the first step in that. Okay, so thanks for listening. I'm wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.